Well, hello everyone and welcome to Gospel Community Providence. We are a small community of Jesus followers in Providence, Rhode Island. Our goal in life is to be the family of God, redeemed and transformed by Jesus, living out God's mission in our culture. You're listening to content created specifically for our church community, and the thoughts and teachings that you'll find here come from a study of the Bible that is informed by some of the best thinkers and followers of Jesus today and throughout church history. Just a heads up, you may hear a variety of voices and distractions and noises in the background. This is because we are a church of families with real lives full of children, noise, and interruptions. We celebrate these noises, however, because they remind us that real life is not a perfectly curated moment, but is full of opportunities to worship Jesus through the messy, unflattering, and mundane. In addition to this, you may hear the voices and comments of various audience members throughout the teaching. While this often causes our time to go a little long, it also deepens and enriches our time together as we discuss what we are learning and reflect on how to live it out. So bear with us. We are not professionals, but we are imperfect people who love and serve a perfect God. Let's go. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it in the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself in sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles: Let neither man nor beast herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fear, fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God sat saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way. God relented of the disaster that he had said he would, he, sorry, that he would say, had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, it is not what I said when I, it isn't, sorry, is it not what I, You're good, that's chapter four. Oh my gosh, I'm sorry. So sorry, everyone. I apologize. I'm not a very good public speaker. No, you, I, I put you on the spot. You did so great. Thank you for reading that. I'm so sorry for putting you on the spot and bait and switching you. <laughs> Thank you so much for reading that. Jonah chapter 3. Uh, so we have been going through the book of Jonah for the past uh, three weeks. This is our third week. Uh, And we are going to wrap up next week and be done with Jonah and jump into our next series, which will be Advent uh, after Thanksgiving. Um, Let's see. In uh, in sports, there's a there's a phrase when someone is the greatest of all time. What do we call that? 
Does anyone, anyone know sports here? The GOAT, right? The, if you're the greatest of all time, you are known as the GOAT. If Micah were here, he would be able to tell us that. Uh, but he's watching online. Um, Jonah is the woat. <laughs> he is the worst of all time. Okay, He is the worst missionary, the worst prophet. Uh, he is a bad example for us to learn from. Does anyone remember what Jonah's name means? What does the word Jonah mean? Dove. Uh, and he is the son of a man named Amittai. Uh, does anyone remember what Amittai means? Faithfulness or truth. And so when it tells us that the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, in chapter 1, it's, it's almost like the start of a bad joke. Okay, uh, the word of the Lord came to Dove, son of faithfulness, and the person that we're talking about is the least faithful person in the entire story. Right? We're starting out with a joke. Uh, Jonah's meant to be satirical, it's meant to be ironic, and it's meant to be a comedy of sorts. As we read this, we're supposed to almost chuckle a little bit. <laughs> okay, that makes sense, right? Dove, son of, son of faithfulness, is running away from the Lord. Um, it's chock full of irony, comedy, and satire. And if you, uh, I'm just giving some background for, for folks that have not been with us the past couple of weeks, or if you're just tuning in for the first time. Uh, Jonah was a prophet of the Lord, and the prophets were uh, called by the Lord to speak on his behalf. He would give them a message. Sometimes it was positive, sometimes it was negative. <clears throat> oftentimes it was negative. It was oftentimes calling out people for their sins, and it was. Uh, I'm, and it was welcoming them back to a relationship with God and telling them how they could become right again. Um, but Jonah is not a very good prophet. Right? He's not very good at what he does. Uh, he, he's, uh, he's only interested in doing the tasks from God that align with his own interests. Okay, Oof. Because right? that's kind of what we do sometimes. Right? We're only interested in doing the tasks from the Lord that align with our own interests, right? If it's something that I want to do, I'll do it, sure. I'll do it wholeheartedly. If it's something I'm uncomfortable with or if I don't like, uh, then we tend to uh, pretend like we didn't hear or whatever. We find a, a way to avoid obeying the, uh, the word of the Lord. And so in Jonah's life, the word of the Lord came to him and told him to go to Nineveh. Uh, what was Nineveh known for? This is a little pop quiz morning for you guys. What was Nineveh known for? Violence. Violence. Okay. Evil. Right. They were known for doing some pretty um, mean things to their enemies. Right. Why does Jonah uh, run away from him, from this this call to go to Nineveh? They don't deserve the grace of God. That is what Jonah believes, right? Jonah does not want the Ninevites to experience uh, the Lord's um, hesed, which is what we talked about last week. And my notes just froze. It's okay. All things happen for a reason. Um, so along... Uh, so, so God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh. He does the opposite. He runs away to Tarshish. 
and God pursues him with his relentlessness. Uh, Jonah is caught up in a storm. Uh, he is hiding away in a boat at the bottom of the boat, and the Lord pursues him and calls him to repent. And so Jonah, uh, rather than turning back to the Lord immediately, decides that he would rather be dead at the bottom of the sea uh, than go to Nineveh. And so God actually, so he actually has the sailors throw him overboard, uh, and uh, God speaks to a fish on his behalf, and he invites the fish to give give Jonah a ride, all right, back towards land, back to Nineveh. Um, the funniest, the funny part about the book of Jonah is everyone in the book of Jonah seems to get it except for the prophet of God, except for the man of God, right? Everyone on the ship is repenting and praying to the Lord and vowing their allegiance to God except for Jonah, right? It takes Jonah until he's in the belly of the whale in order to experience any kind of repentance, Right, So in Jonah chapter 2, we got to read a poem that Jonah has written in the belly of the whale. Right? He recognizes that he has done something wrong. He turns his face to God, and he vows to fulfill what God is calling him to. Right? And I don't know about you, uh, I tend to be a little skeptical of repentance that happens like on the, on the spot. Not, not skeptical, I don't know if there's a better word for that. Um, when I was... In middle school, you could say that I had my like a rebellious streak. I, I've never really been much of a rebel. Um, but in middle school, I had my rebellious streak. Um, and I have this one story that's lodged in my memory. Uh, I had been raised in a Christian family. I knew the truth about God. I knew the truth about Jesus. Um, and uh, I was going through this rebellious streak where I, I kind of was deciding for myself whether or not I was going to follow uh, the way of Jesus. And I wasn't sure yet. I was actually leaning away from it. My friends didn't follow Jesus, and so I wanted to be like them, talk like them, act like them. And I remember one particular moment. I was in a public school at this time. I remember one particular moment. I actually woke up, and I, and I foolishly said to myself or said to God, I don't believe in God anymore. That's it. I'm done. I had made my decision. Right? And that particular day was the only day in my entire life that I was actually sent to the principal's office for doing something in class. All right, I'm not much of a rebel, but that was the one moment that I was like sent back to the principal's office. And I remember sitting in the principal's office praying, all right, all right Lord, I'm, I'm sorry, forgive me. I do believe in you. All right, forgive me. Like, like repenting, right? I was pulling a Jonah. I was in the belly of the whale slash the principal's office and I was repenting. Whether or not it was genuine, who knows? Probably a little bit of both. But in the moment, I knew I needed to repent and confess and apologize uh, to the Lord for what I had said and done. You guys ever experienced this? Repentance that happens because like something bad happens. Like, oh no, I messed up. Um, Jonah seems to go through that moment uh, in the belly of the whale. And so last week we talked specifically about this idea of God's hesed, his steadfast love, right? Jonah does not deserve God's mercy, but he gets it anyway, right? God is steadfast and relentless in his pursuit of Jonah. And so as we wrapped up Jonah chapter two, we saw him declaring that salvation belongs to the Lord. And then the fish vomits Jonah out on the land. All right. So as we step into chapter three, we would expect that Jonah is a changed man. 
right? How do you go through what Jonah went through and not, not have a complete 180 change of your life, right? We would expect that Jonah is a change man. Let's, we're going to meet this new and improved Jonah in chapter 3. Uh, but I want to caution you. So far in this book, uh, no one has, 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 has lived up to the expectations that we set on them. Right, Jonah is not the man of God that we expect him to be. Uh, the sailors and the captain are not the pagans that we expect them to be. Right, the belly of the fish is apparently a great place to uh, you know, contemplate life and work on poetry. Right? None of these things are as we would expect. Uh, so far, the only character in the story that is acting is exactly how you would expect is God. He's the only one in the story who's acting exactly as you would expect. He's acting exactly according to his character, right? We know him to be a God of justice, and so he will address the injustice he sees in the world, right? We know him to be a God of mercy, and he will show mercy to those that repent and turn back to him, right? He is the God who pursues those who rebel against him in order to be merciful towards them. God is acting exactly as we would expect him to be, unlike anyone else in the story. All right, let's take a look at this new and transformed Jonah. Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. And this is a deja vu moment, okay? And this is a deja vu moment, okay? Okay. this is an exact replica of what happened in chapter 1, verse 1. Okay? Uh, the wording is almost identical, except for one moment. Uh, God says that he, the word says that God came to him a second time. Right? The amazing part about Jonah's story is that he gets a second chance. Right? Jonah gets a second chance. One pastor I was listening to this week was saying that uh, if God gives you a second chance to, uh, to get up and go, like Jonah has been given a second chance to get up and go, he says, you got to do it immediately. Because right? if you don't do it immediately, you're going to talk yourself out of it again. Right? Have, you, have you experienced that? I've experienced this in my life. When I sense the Holy Spirit is, is calling me to do something or say something or act in a particular way, if I don't do it immediately, if I don't jump right, right up and just do it right away, I find reasons to talk myself out of it. Or maybe, maybe it was just a bad burrito I had. I'm just feeling a little extra sensitive today or whatever. Uh, or God obviously doesn't want me to go do that. I've got these other things on my agenda for the day. So if I don't obey the word of the Lord immediately, I end up talking myself out of it. And so... When God gives you a second chance, obey it immediately. Let's move on to verse three. Let's take a look at this new and improved, matured, grown-up Jonah. Uh, So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. So this new and improved Jonah, all right, uh, OG Jonah, when God says arise and go, he, said, he arose and he ran. New and improved Jonah, when God says arise and go, he obeys. He arises and he goes to Nineveh. We talked about Nineveh on week one, uh, but just in case you missed it, uh, Nineveh was a part of the Assyrian Empire. They were enemies of Israel. Right? They were well known for their military brilliance and they were, they were particularly good at conquering nations. 
right? They had a way of looking at a map and identifying what are the key cities, the key roads that we need to take out in order to conquer this nation. So they were particularly adept at this. They were so good at it uh, that their, their, their fame was known throughout the land, right? For being violent, for being conquerors, for being evil in many ways, especially towards their enemies. And uh, archaeologists have actually found the ancient city of Nineveh. Uh, it is, uh, has been excavated and they found carvings and images that have been drawn that depict some of the things that the Ninevites would do. And they are truly vile, right? You are supposed to fear the Ninevites, right? When the king calls you into his office to have a chat, you would walk past these images and you're like, uh-oh, it's not the guy that I want to... Uh, Take off today, okay? They were supposed to be feared by their enemies. Uh, and if there is anyone throughout history that seemingly deserved God's judgment uh, for the evil that they'd done, it was the Ninevites. All right, I want you to take just a second here. Think about uh, the people in our day or in our recent history uh, who we would universally say deserve God's judgment, right? Think of the Hitler's. Of, our, of, our, of the last hundred years. The people that we would universally say, oh yeah, that person deserves God's judgment. Right? Jonah felt that way about the Ninevites. Right? Verse three told us that it was a, an exceedingly great city, which means it was just large and it was important. It was a, a key city in the area. Uh, and it was uh, a three days journey in breadth. In, in other words, it takes about three days to be able to canvas the entire city, to be able to see the entire city for a message to... Uh, spread throughout the entire city. So in verse three, we see a new and improved Jonah. In verse four, however, we see a little glimpse of the past, right? Jonah chapter three, verse four says, uh, Jonah began into the city going a day's journey and he called out yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. All right, uh, help me remember here. Uh, how long uh, did verse three say it would take to get around the city? Three days. How long does Jonah spend in the city? One day. One day. Right, so he, he hits one third of the city. Okay. Uh, what about his sermon? Right, his sermon is five words long in the Hebrew. In English, it's eight. Right, in the Hebrew, it's five words long. What is, what is his sermon missing? Call to There's no call to repentance. There's no mention that repentance is, is even an option. He has no mention of God. They, like, if, if you're a Ninevite, imagine like you're, you're just like an average Joe Ninevite and you hear this message like, who's coming? When are they coming? What happened? Why is this happening? Like, Jonah tells him nothing. He just tells him the bare minimum to, in order to be obedient, obedient to the word of the Lord. 40 days and you're done. 40 days and you're done. That's it. Destruction. You're going to be overthrown. You will be destroyed. Jonah spends about a third of the time preaching, only half of the message. I don't know about you, but this seems to me a little bit like, like self-sabotage, right? How can I preach what God tells me to preach, but also still ensure that the Ninevites won't repent, won't hear about God, won't hear about Hesed, and won't experience God's mercy? Right? This is the bare minimum amount of work. A little bit of old Jonah coming through, right? 
Maybe he hasn't repented as much as we think he should have repented or would have repented. Right? And this is where things get a little bit hairy for you and me. Right? This is where the, the water gets a little bit too hot uh, for our comfort. Because right? you and I do this on a regular basis. Right? You and I do this very same thing on a regular basis. God gives us a calling that we're not thrilled about. And we either run away or we do the bare minimum in order to skate by, to say that we were faithful and we did what God called us to do, we're just gonna skate by, all right? The Holy Spirit moves in us to speak up to someone, to tell them that God loves them, and we buy them a cup of coffee and tell them to have a nice day, right? We do the bare minimum, right? A coworker comes up to you or comes up to me and says, man, there's something different about you. And I respond, yeah, I just, I just really like being a nice guy. Right? We, we are called uh, to love our enemies and we find excuses as to why those particular enemies don't count. Right? We claim that we believe and we follow Jesus and we believe in Jesus' family mission and yet functionally we live out one or two of them and we ignore one or two of them. Right? We might not actually say what Jonah says in chapter four, which we'll see next week. Uh, but we show that we believe it by the way that we live our lives. Does that, does that make you feel a little uncomfortable? Have you seen that in your own life? I've seen it in mine. I, I see a little Jonah in myself. How are you sabotaging God's work in your life? All right, how do you find yourself? What is, what, is your, um, what is the way in which you half obey what God is calling you to? Just enough so that I can get God off my back, so to speak, but not actually do what God has called me to. Right? The most incredible, the most unbelievable part of the entire book of Jonah is not the fact that we have a man of God who is running away from God. Right? The most unbelievable part of the story is not the fact that God talks to uh, raging storms and fish and, and, and ships uh, and they do his, his bidding. The most amazing part isn't even the fact that a man can survive three days and three nights in the belly of a fish. The most incredible, the most unbelievable, the most amazing part of the book of Jonah, the entire book, is that despite Jonah's worst efforts, the people respond with repentance. Or his best efforts to do his worst efforts. I don't don't know however you want to put that. The people respond with repentance to the worst sermon preached in the history of sermons. Read verse five with me. And the people of Nineveh believed God and they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And we're gonna dissect their repentance in just a moment. But isn't it just mind-blowing to you that God is able to do such an incredible work through someone who does such a bad job representing him? Have you ever felt like, man, I don't, I don't know enough to answer the right questions. Maybe I'm not a good public speaker. Right? Maybe, I, 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 uh, maybe I'm too new with this. Or I've lost my opportunity to speak up to this person. Right? God is able to do some incredible things with the least amount of effort on our part. That doesn't mean we should do the least amount of effort. That means just think about what he can do with all of my effort. All right? What does the text, who does the text say the Ninevites believed? 
Amazing. Because Jonah doesn't mention God. Right? It doesn't say they believed Jonah. It says they believed God. Uh, Romans 1.17 tells us the righteous shall live by faith. Hebrews 11.6 says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. Uh, so somehow, and, I, and I'll tell you how, it's the Holy Spirit. Despite all of Jonah's efforts, the Ninevites choose to believe God and repent of their way. And what, what are they believing? They're believing that God is who he says he is. He has done what he says he has done and that he will do what he says he will do. And I promise you that there is not a single person in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, or today, there's not a single person who is saved without believing that. Without believing God. I want to read the rest of this chapter and then we'll talk about repentance for a few minutes. Uh, Jonah chapter 3 verse 6. The word uh, uh, reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let every man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent uh, and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented uh, from the disaster that he said would, uh, he would do to them, and he did not do it. Uh, speaking of repentance, uh, Thomas Carlyle, I've got a couple quotes that are in your study, uh, in your sermon, sermon guide for today. Thomas Carlyle says, uh, of all acts of man, repentance is the most divine. Right? The greatest of all faults is to be conscious of none. If you think you're doing great, you're pretty blind is what he means, right? R.C. Uh, J.C. Ryle says, uh, true repentance begins, begins with a knowledge of sin. It goes on to work sorrow for sin. Uh, it leads to confession of sin before God. Uh, it shows itself before a person by, uh, by a thorough breaking off from sin, and it results uh, in producing a deep hatred of all sin. And John Ortberg says, uh, true repentance never leads to despair. Right? It leads home. It leads to grace. Right? Jonah 3, I think, teaches us that genuine repentance always starts internally and that it manifests, it reveals itself by what I do externally. Right? It starts with what God is doing in my, in my heart, in my soul, and that then you can know that it's genuine because it flows out of me into my external actions and speech and behaviors in every part. All right, so let, let's take a look at the three steps, the clear, three clear steps that the Ninevites took for repentance. This is all from verse five. And it's interesting that the Ninevites themselves repent first and then the king repents and issues another proclamation. And he actually takes things further, right? The king takes everything one step further, right? So the first thing that the Ninevites did is they believed God, all right? This word believed in the Hebrew is the exact same word uh, that is used in Genesis 15, verse 6, where it says that Abram believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Same exact faith. 
right? And if it was enough to save Abram, it's enough to save the Ninevites, right? This is the faith that pleases God, right? They believed God. And this was genuine repentance. It's not just feeling sorry uh, for themselves or for what they had done or for being caught or whatever. It is wholeheartedly believing that God is right and I am wrong. All right, I need to align myself with what God has said. I need to repent of my thinking and my beliefs and my actions. So they believed God. Number two, they called out. Right? They articulated to one another, we need to do something. We need to fast. They called one another to repentance. They called one another to action. Uh, one scholar explains it this way. He says, the normal response for Assyrians uh, to news that the gods were offended would have been sacrifices, libations, supplications, and prostration. But it is well known that fasting was a symbol for the, afflicted, for the affliction of the soul or, intent, or for intense mourning of the heart. All right, this fasting would not have been a normal practice for the Ninevites in their day. And yet this is this, the step that they take. Uh, and like I said, the king takes everything one step further. Right? Uh, we're not just we are going to fast. But we're going to make the animals fast as well. Right? It's not that, uh, the, that we're going to wear sackcloth. We're also going to make the animals wear sackcloth. Right? We're all in this together. We're going to make sure that like, every living creature is a part of this process. Right? This was a, a very internal process. They wanted their internal body to feel the manifestation, the physical manifestations of their heart's condition. My heart is broken and I want my body to also experience a part of that. Right? If you've ever done any kind of fasting, right? when, you, when your stomach starts to turn and you get a little hungry, that's a moment to remember there's something that I should be hungering for spiritually even more than food. Right? It's a very physical and very present reminder. I can't forget it because all I'm thinking about is I'm really hungry. Right? Fasting does some incredible things. So they, they believe God, they called out for a fast, and then they put on sackcloth. Sackcloth was made um, from goat's hair. Uh, it's uh, very uncomfortable. It was itchy. Uh, it was meant to remind you, again, like fasting, like the gurgling in your stomach, it was meant to remind you, oh yeah, we're doing something different here. Right? The way that I've been living my life is not right, and I want to make sure that I, uh, my, my entire body is a part of this physical, spiritual experience of repenting. Right? It was very different from what they would have normally worn. Imagine uh, when you go to a funeral, you wear black. Right? Imagine just saying, like, I'm going to wear black for the next month just to remind myself that I'm mourning for my sin. And someone would ask you, are you depressed? What's going on? Why are you wearing black? Okay, great opportunity to tell them about what Jesus is doing in your life. Right? It's a very visible, very external display of their internal condition. This would have been... Uh, this would have been this would have been very humbling for the king, especially. Because he takes it one step further. He does one more thing that no one else in the in the group does. Right? He also repents and believes God. He also fasts. He also puts on sackcloth. But then he also gets off of his throne and he goes and he sits in ashes. A very humiliating and humbling experience for the king. There's an interesting, interesting side lesson here that those who are in leadership lead by example, right? I can't expect the people that I'm leading to do more than what I am already doing. 
Okay, so if I, if I want to lead by example, I need to go above and beyond what I'm calling even all of you to. In verse 8, the king doesn't just command uh, the people to perform these tasks. Right? He invites them, he challenges them to turn from their evil va- ways, uh, to turn from their violence, and to call out to God. Right? In other words, uh, he decreed that the people's lives should match their prayers. There's a fun little fact for you here. Um, the wording in verse 9 where the king says, Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Is actually very similar wording, almost identical wording uh, to what the captain says in chapter one. Right? This goes to, again, this is like a little literary nod to the brilliance of how the book is written. These, these repeated phrases, repeated characters, repeated actions, right? Um, and you see this, uh, you see this as well, you know, the, the king is a, is, a, is a comparison to the captain, okay? Uh, the Ninevites are a comparison to the sailors. Uh, the fish in chapter uh, uh, one is a comparison to the worm in chapter four, right? The storm in chapter one and the scorching wind in chapter four, these are all like little parallels to remind us to compare. Like these, these are two very similar uh, moments, uh, deja vu moments for Jonah. Okay, uh, let's close with this. Um, in our, in our Wednesday night Lincoln uh, Gospel Community Group, we've been reading through the book of Romans. Um, and we've been discussing, particularly in the past couple of weeks, this idea of God's wrath or his anger towards, uh, towards evil, towards sin, towards sinners. Uh, and this is not an easy subject for us to talk about. We don't like thinking about an angry God or a wrathful God, even though that's a really important thing for us to understand and have a good grasp on, right? So when, when the wrath of God comes up, we tend to like, like, like shove it away and like try to minimize it, pretend like God is not that angry or he's not that bad because we, we, we feel like awkward or uncomfortable talking about God's anger or his wrath. We prefer talking about how God is love. And he cares for us. And there's mercy and grace, which is also true. But we can't have mercy and grace without also having anger and wrath. All right. So this has been a really like, challenging topic for us over the past couple of weeks. Uh, we've wrestled through it. We've chewed on it. And we're almost done talking about God's wrath. In, in Romans, we're going to move on to um, some, 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 uh, some more content pretty soon here. Um, but Tim, Tim Mackey uses this really interesting illustration when he's talking about uh, God's wrath. He says, uh, imagine that you're walking down the street uh, and you're walking by a group of bullies that are picking on a child. Right? They're shoving him around. Right? They're calling him names. They're taking his lunch money. Right? He tries to get up. They shove him back down to the ground. They're picking on him. Right? And they're... They, they have evil intent for that little boy. Right? What do you do? You have three options. Uh, you can walk by and start giving the bully suggestions on how to better bully that kid. Okay? That would be pretty evil of you, but you could do that. Option two, uh, you can walk by and do nothing. Right? Um, it would be kind of unloving. Right? You're the adult in the room. It's your role to intervene. Uh, but you could walk by and do nothing. Or option three, you could walk by and you can intervene. 
right? And if you were to intervene, those bullies would experience your anger and your wrath. However, that plays out for you personally, right? To, at least to them, what you are doing would feel like injustice, right? You're stopping us from doing that which we want to do, which we think is good and fair and right, even though you as the adult know that what they're doing is wrong and evil, right? God's justice and his goodness requires him to respond to the evil that he sees in our world. But his wrath is never out of the blue, right? It's never unexpected and it's never undeserved, Right, so the Ninevites, we know, deserve God's wrath. And he promised uh, that in 40 days, they would experience what the Hebrew calls hapak. H-A-P-A-K, hapak. Um, this word hapak is translated destroy or overthrow in, in, your, in your Bibles. Uh, it is not, however, always translated this way. And this is where things get a little bit interesting. Right, hapak Listen to this quote. Uh, uh, the word for destroy, hapak, carries a certain vagueness to it. Uh, since it can mean either to turn or to overthrow, it can signify judgment, a turning upside down, a reversal, a change, a deposing of royalty, or a change of heart. In other words, Jonah's words could mean either that in 40 more days Nineveh would be destroyed or that in 40 more days, Nineveh would have a change of heart. Hapak. How crazy is that? Even within Jonah's crappy message, even within his, his really bad sermon, uh, God is able to turn that for grace. Right? Either way, whether the Ninevites were to repent or whether the Ninevites were to persist in their evil, either way, God's message would have been true. If they repented, they would experience hapak, a change of heart. If they persisted, they would experience hapak, destruction. Uh, each week during worship, I intentionally invite us to step into a moment of examination and confession. Uh, I usually say something along the lines of, or this morning, Brittany actually did that for us. I usually say something along the lines of, uh, take a moment to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal any areas of sin in your life. Uh, and I usually try to invite you to confess that sin to the Lord, to repent of it, and to turn from it. And normally this is an internal thing. We don't typically do this out loud, although sometimes we, we invite some, some out loud vocalization of what God is doing in your heart. Um, let me ask you this. Uh, is the Holy Spirit bringing anything to your attention when we go through that practice? Right? Is there something that he keeps bringing up in, in your mind? Right? Something that keeps coming back to, I haven't dealt with this. I haven't confessed this. Right? I haven't repented of this. Uh, I, there's a story when I was in high school. Um, I was pretty serious about my walk with Jesus at this point. I was pretty heavily involved in, in my church, in my youth group. I was leading worship. I, I was the, uh, the, um, the chaplain of our class, right? I was the, 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 the spiritual kid in the class. I went to a Christian school at this point. Um, and so if the Christian kids are, are, are looking at me that way, you know I was pretty religious, right? And so I thought I was a pretty big deal. I was, I was serious about my walk with the Lord and, uh, and all of that. Uh, but I remember one particular 
semester or quarters, I guess in high school is what they call them, uh, we had a reading assignment. I've, I've shared the story with some of you, so some of you have heard this, some of you haven't. Uh, I had, we had a reading assignment. We had to read a certain amount of pages in order to uh, to get the credit, and you've reported, hey, I read you know these books and these many pages, and uh, I did not like reading in high school. I still don't love reading, but I'm learning to love it more and more. Um, but I remember in high school, I was so busy with important ministry things that I forgot to read one, one quarter. Just didn't get to it. It's like 1,500 pages. There's, I'm such a slow reader. It would take like 10 years for me to read 1,500 pages. Uh, and so I thought to myself, it was, it, was, it was like a Friday right before spring break. I thought to myself, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going I'm to write down that I read you know, these three books. Uh, and then during spring break, I'll just read them. And it'll be like I never lied, right? Like no, no issues, right? No harm, no foul. Um, so I wrote it down, uh, lied and cheated on my assignment, and uh, obviously did not actually do any of my reading because once you've got the credit, what's the point of doing the work? Uh, so I didn't do any of my reading, right? And for some reason, the Holy Spirit uh, thought it was appropriate in that particular week for our youth group to start studying uh, repentance, confession, sin, and the Holy Spirit. And so that was unfortunate timing. Uh, but I actually decided that I, I had a better way. I was going to try to shove this away and ignore it and pretend like it didn't happen. And what ended up happening was I started to experience a wall being built up between me and the Lord, between me and Jesus. There was a wall that was being built up, right? I can't really explain it in any other way other than I felt distance. I felt like there was something that was on my heart. There was something that I had done wrong, however innocent or, or white lie-ish it was or whatever, um, however, you know, I wasn't doing hard drugs, but I was cheating and lying, okay? And that's, sin is sin, either way. And so I felt this, this conviction from the Holy Spirit to go and confess, to repent, to deal with it. And instead of dealing with it, I chose to repress it and push it away. And I did this for years. For some reason, every time someone talked about confession, repentance, Holy Spirit, the one thing the Holy Spirit kept bringing to my mind was this silly assignment that I cheated on in high school. And it wasn't until I was in Bible college, right? Years later, I'm in, I graduated, I'm done with that school, I'm in Bible college, that I finally said, all right, I've got to deal with this. Right? I, can't, I can't allow this wall between me and Jesus to keep uh, standing in place. And so I confessed what I had done to some of my friends at, at Bible college. I told them, hey, I need to go deal with this. It might seem silly or, or stupid to you guys, but this is important. The Holy Spirit has been convicting me of this for years. And uh, the, the, on my way home one day, I stopped by the school and I, and I repented. I confessed what I had done uh, to my teacher. Uh, and it was a beautiful moment of grace and, uh, and mercy there. Right? God is a God of love and justice, right? He loves us too much to let us persist in our sin, right? He pursues us when we run from his calling. He convicts us and he leads us to repentance, right? He gave Nineveh 40 days. And the question I have for you is, what day are you on? Right, maybe today is day one. There's something you need to confess and repent of and you're resisting it, maybe today is day 39 and Hapak is coming. Right? Will your story be one of destruction or of repentance? Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus,
We don't deserve your mercy. We don't deserve your steadfast love, and yet you give it. You pursue us not to uh, grind us into the ground, but you pursue us so that we would experience the fullness of life. Would you teach us what it means to be a people of confession, a people of repentance? Would you uh, magnify and intensify the the voice of the Holy Spirit in our lives? And for those of us that have spent uh, weeks, months, years resisting your Holy Spirit as he convicts us and he pushes us towards holiness, Jesus, would you open our eyes and, and help us to wake up this morning? You're inviting us uh, into a relationship with you and that relationship is, is dependent on our ability to confess and repent. Would you teach us what it means to be uh, people of genuine repentance, Lord? Uh, Guard us from being like Jonah, uh, who repented of his repentance. He went back on his repentance, Lord. Would you allow us to be a people who are genuinely broken over our sin and confess it to you, to one another, so that we can live lives of holiness. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.